0: Thank you, Maisie. Can we pray together? Lord God, because uh, we have attended to your word this morning, may we find ourselves entering further into those lines we've just sung. Rejoice, your Lord is King. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you Uh, probably not so many now, but have in the past been an avid reader of Superman comics. Um, Superman, comic book hero, used to fight, please, for what? Uh, Louder so we can all hear it? Oh, nearly, nearly. Truth, justice, and the American way. Somehow that would never really translate to Britain, would it? What would be the British way? Truth, justice, and a nice cup of tea. (laughs) As we in this country have lost power, we've also lost confidence in the ways that power can be employed for good. Our long history has taught us to be nervous of power. It's not surprising it was a British historian, who pointed out that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we're never going to understand biblical kingship until we learn to be comfortable again with the idea that power can be used for good, and absolute power can be used for absolute good. Life in the Bible is never finally democratic or equal. There is one who is set apart, utterly good, utterly powerful. So let's begin with our psalm, if we may. Would you please turn to page 569 in the Bibles? Psalm 45 is a picture of what a king should be. And Notice that, it's a picture of what a king should be. When the people of Israel first asked for a king to lead them, like all the other nations round about, God warned them, kings, he said, kings abuse power. And so there was lots of nervousness around kings. And the kings that they got did indeed abuse power. But that itself left open a hope. A hope of a king who would be faithful and true and just what a king should be. And what a king we get in Psalm 45. It's a psalm for a king's wedding. And this king excels in every department. In what he says, according to verse 2, his lips are anointed. In what he does, he conquers. It's his kind of, it's his job. It's what he does. I'm a king. It's what I do. With a mighty sword and in splendor and majesty, according to verse 3, he rides out and is victorious. And in who he is, what he says, what he does, and who he is. He is virtuous. He's defending truth, humility, and righteousness. Uh, It's extraordinary, isn't it? There he is with all this majesty and splendor, and his job is to defend humility. But that's what it says. And there's no problem here for the writer linking virtue and power. None of that nervous British thing about power. He endures, and everything that is his is beautiful, and fragrant, and joyful. And yet, this king, this king before whose iron scepter nations will fall, is himself, according to this psalm, held completely captive, He is in thrall to the beauty of the young woman he is to marry that day. She alone has passed through his defences and got to him. And the poet looks to the days when the sons of this marriage will be mighty princes throughout the land. Well, uh, uh, Rolf Harris is a performer who's famous for a number of things including an unusual ability to paint a picture such that only very late on in the process, as the penny drops, is it possible to see what it was. And he has that tagline, which many of us will remember. Can you tell what it is yet? (laughs) Well, we can read this psalm, written many hundreds of years B.C., in the days of the kings, and we can ask, can you tell what it is yet? And if you couldn't anyway, then one glance over the page at verse 6 makes it a giveaway. The poet addresses the king as God. Your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever. And we know he's not talking to God at that point, because in verse 7, it says, therefore, God, you God. This is God who has a God. As one by one, the kings of the Old Testament prove themselves to be a complete disaster and a clear demonstration that power corrupts, the hope begins to grow that there will one day be a king for whom it's not true, a king who does what a king should. But it's going to have to be a king who is in himself some way, in some way divine. So bad are the kings that the only way that they can envisage being rescued from this mess of unholiness that the kings are, You think, well, one day there's got to be a king who's actually got something of God about him. I became a Christian uh, about the time that I went to university. And while I was there, I heard lots of talks, lots of sermons, lots of evangelistic presentations. And preachers were rather fond of saying... What do you say about Jesus? You may may have made him your saviour, but is he your Lord? And it's not a bad thing to say. I guess there were lots of people who responded, who'd seen Jesus on the cross as someone who died for their sins, rightly. That's what he does. But had never asked him to direct life in the future. In a sense, they got stuck at the cross and hadn't realised that he, he is raised to life. So it was a good thing, perhaps, to say, he may be your saviour, but is he your Lord? But I've got a bigger hope this morning. It's that any of us who have Jesus in a category, my saviour, good, my Lord, better, will actually move on to say, yes, he's not just my Lord, he's the Lord. He's the King. And Revelation 19 is a good place to go for that. So please move forward to page 1248. And that's where we see, really, the coming to pass of this Old Testament hope, longing. Revelation, the whole book, is a series of visions given to the elder, as he's called, the elder John. And that's probably the young friend of Jesus who had run to Jesus' tomb uh, with the uh, disciple Peter. And in this vision... John sees a white horse with a rider. Now, throughout the Bible, the horse means pretty much just one thing, war. The Israelites were defeated by Philistine armies with chariots and horses. The kings of Israel measured wealth according to how many stables of horses they had. So this is no longer, if you kind of think, if you have that sort of resonance The picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of peace. This is now revealed as the horse for the king, who makes war on all that stands for injustice. All that stands against him. And to the power of that mighty warrior, there are allied all the virtues of the ideal king. He is, according to verse 11, the one who is faithful and true. He judges with justice. He has the purity of fire in his eyes and the power of crowns upon his head. He's not even revealed holy in this vision. There's always that something which you will not grab hold of in this king, for he has a name known only to himself. And his role is dreadful, full of dread. He rules with an iron scepter, And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. For this is the role of the word of God, according to verse 13. He who is, according to verse 16, the king of kings and lord of lords. And if you're missing from this picture all the delight of that marriage psalm, with its gentler music, then by all means go on a couple of chapters to chapter 21 where the bride of this warrior king is revealed to be the church of God who has captured his heart. The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. It is a dreadful, awful image. And we can tell a great deal from how we react to it. Perhaps there are those of us here with a militant temperament, who say, go get them. Those who know that all the powers of all the earth are not enough to deal with the evil on the earth, who rejoice to know that the bad guys are going to get it. Fine. But I'm a bad guy. And so are you. And one of the things this passage does is to remind me of what my sinfulness looks like to a holy God, provoking his fury and wrath, such that a dreadful judgment is called forth, unless something else happens. More likely, I suspect, and this is what worries me, that we have come to share as Christians, in this world's distaste for anything so brutal and so final, We've learned, as I said at the beginning, that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, that truth and justice are complicated, that heroes have got a dark side. We have seen the damage that war inflicts, and we recoil from any sense that war could bring about final justice. We stand puzzled before the simple claim that here is a figure who, according to the text, judges and makes war, verse 16, because for us, war does not bring about true judgment. We've grown cynical. We've lost hope in these final simplicities. And yet it's here that we find precisely the point that I suggest matters. We've prayed this morning the prayer that Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come. And it can slip into being a kind of pious wish that life would somehow be nicer for everybody when it's really intended to be a burning, urgent longing that life as we know it should give way to life as it ought to be because it sure ain't that way now. This is a world in which a wheelchair user is kidnapped and snatched away from Kenya to Somalia. It's a world in which a Christian pastor, as we heard in the prayers, is sentenced to death for converting to follow Jesus. It's a world in which minors still die, even in our own country. It's a world in which my heart is sinful and so is yours. It has to be a great thing if you have discovered the cross of Jesus, if you have discovered that Jesus is your saviour from A sinful heart, that that He is the one who stands between you and judgment. It's a great thing if you've discovered that. It's better still if you have learned to live your life seeking uh, His will as, as your Lord and King, so that your life is built on His character. But we may still end up with a small scale Jesus. A Jesus who's my Saviour and my Lord. The truth of the Old Testament, fulfilled when Jesus lived and rose on earth, and made clear here at the end of all things in Revelation, is that Jesus is the Lord. He is the King, before whom all other lords and kings bow the knee. That's what it means in verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So our task if we are summoned by God, is not to do something that helps us a bit to recognize him as Lord. It is to bow the knee and repent before the universal reality that this man has been raised to the highest height, to the right hand of God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and requires our submission. And if you've not got to that point this morning, then do at least be aware that that is what is required, that you bow the knee, as nearly everyone in this room has done. And would we not have so much more confidence in our proclamation of Christ if we saw it this way around? He simply is the Lord. When we run Christianity Explored from the 17th of October, we're not asking people to do something to God. We're not asking them to raise up Jesus in some way, but simply to recognize that grand universal fact that he is the Lord and the right response is to bow before him. Without that response, we may have direction for our life, but we may lack that deep longing and desire that this Lord and this King should make his kingdom come and soon. We might lack the indignation and the anger that we should have when we watch the news programs. Jesus enthroned as King is the only hope for a world in which bad things happen, in which bad things happen to you and me, and in which we make bad things happen for others because any other solution does end up using power corruptly. Only he is faithful and true, allied to majesty and power, and that sword, unerring sword, that comes from his mouth, speaks truth, and acts it out. If we have read Psalm 45 rightly, then from some deep place within, a place of joy, we will long that it should be so, for that king to be enthroned. And if we read Revelation 19 rightly, we will say from the depths of the world's pain, put it right. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Put it right. And he will. Beginning with your heart and with mine, he will put it right. If he is not Lord and cannot put it right, then we are the most hopeless of beings on this planet. But if he is what these words claim that he is, then this world and all its peoples caught up in terrible events and pains, then we and they and all can have final hope. But only if he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Perhaps I'll um, I'll just read a couple of verses from that picture in Revelation. While you consider in your own uh, mind and heart, what is your posture before this rider? His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord God, forgive us whenever we make Jesus smaller, convenient and pocket-sized, a God to carry around with us instead of making us into the people who are carried by him always. We sing our songs, we've sung them many times, that you would reign in us again. And we pray that genuinely from hearts that may have lost that habit. And yet we come before you and echo our earlier prayers. That as Jesus is the Lord of Lords, as he is the King of kings. So this world would know it. And he would have his rightful place in a world that desperately calls out for his justice and truth to come to pass. Amen.